Thank you for tuning into Air and Earth, the podcast that lifts you up and keeps you grounded. I'm your host, Melissa Moffat, and I'm here to share some information that I've found helpful in my own life, as well as interview people on topics ranging from self-love of body, soul, and mind, social, environmental, and animal justice, mindfulness, business, relationships, ethics, and so much more with the intention of supporting you on your healing and growth journey as you strive to love yourself, those around you, and the planet just a little more. Everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Air and Earth. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. If this is your first episode ever, welcome to the show. If you have been tuning in every week, I just want to say freaking thank you. Freaking thank you. And if you are someone who has shared, either posted on your Instagram story or told a friend or put up a flyer, just kidding. I don't know. Maybe you put up a flyer. I don't know. Maybe you should. Anyway, if you've shared it anyway, or if you've subscribed, or if you've left a review on iTunes or sent me a DM, I just want to say thank you. Those things it, it drives me. It keeps me going. You all give me ideas of what to record about. I make this show for you. So thank you for your feedback. If you are a listener and you haven't done any of those things, if you feel inspired, please do it. It will help me so much. Leave a review, rate, subscribe, share with your friends. Let me know how you feel about the show. Give me some feedback. Give me some, some uh, what, what do you want to hear? Let me know. Let me know. Reach out to me and let me know. This episode is with my friend, Stephen Adams. Stephen Adams is a meditation teacher. He teaches about mindfulness in a hectic world. He shares his story of how he moved from being in a confused state, working in a job that he felt was like soul sucking and draining into doing something that gave him energy that he he feels fulfilled every day when he wakes up and and loves his work and loves his life and that's what he teaches and that's what we talk about in this show he's also the author of the book on the way it's a great book i have the book i love the book <laughs> so check out the book if you love his talk find him on instagram i have all of his info linked down below in the show notes before we get into the chat, however, I want to give you all a few updates for this upcoming week. This week, all of my guides are on sale. That means if you have been interested in getting started in meditation and you feel like you need a little bit of support, you need a little bit of inspiration, you can either get my guided meditation album that also has a guide with how to establish a practice, what are the different forms of meditation, what are the benefits, what is my story with meditation, like what, what is actually going to change for you through meditation. All of that is in that guide, and I expand upon that guide with the growth guide, so that includes the album, it includes the meditation guide, but it also includes journaling prompts and reading exercises and other relevant practices that you can do into your life to further embody these topics like letting go, facing your fear, living in a place of gratitude. So those guides are on sale all this week, if you're listening in real time, they're 25% off. Link is down below. Go check it out. I also want to remind you all that you have an opportunity to travel with me coming up in October. We are going to Iceland. My friend Michaela and I are going to be leading a retreat. She's an incredible yoga teacher. So she'll be teaching yoga classes. I'm going to be teaching mindset, mindfulness, meditation, journaling, how to retrain our thoughts, all of these things, and we're doing it in Iceland. It's going to be freaking fabulous. Like the nature there is incredible. You've seen photos. So from the United States, tickets are an awesome price. Plane tickets are an awesome price. Um, so like hop on this retreat. It's going to be incredible. For the next week, you can get $200 off of your retreat by using the code LUMINOUSU when you check out. If you're thinking about coming on the retreat, send me a message, send me an email, let's talk about it, and we can get you signed up and ready to go to Iceland with us. We have a few spots left, so, so let's get you signed up and in Iceland with us. That's all for this week. 
and let's dive into today's talk with my friend and my one of the people that I really, really look up to, and I just love him so much, and I love this talk, and I know you're going to love it too, my friend, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. First of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, thanks so much, Melissa. It's an honor to be here, and it's just great to be able to do this with you after you know, about a year of probably knowing each other and cultivating this friendship that started on Instagram. I know, I know. So for everyone listening, Stephen and I, yeah, we connected probably about a year ago and we just have like very similar life philosophies and um, we got to meet in real life. It was just a few months ago. About two months ago, yeah. Yeah. And it, we, yeah, we met up, we had lunch and it was like so awesome. We, I feel like we could just talk forever about just like life, you know, and we're going to, we're going to talk about all this stuff. So I'm really excited to share your story with everyone and, you know, all of your, your wisdom and all of that. So thanks so much. Yeah. And I absolutely appreciate the opportunity to connect with your audience. Um, too. <laughs> Yeah. So we'll just dive in. I want to start off with you sharing a bit of your story. So you started out in the corporate world and now you're teaching, you're teaching meditation. Like that's what you do full time and you're, you're an author, you're a speaker. Um, So I was wondering if you would tell that backstory, maybe how you got into meditation. Absolutely. Um, All of it. I want to know all of it. Yeah. So it's interesting because it goes back a really long way. <laughs> I'm definitely dating myself at this point. Um, I'm, 41, <laughs> I'm 41 now. Um, but this journey effectively started when I was about 15. And um, that's when I sort of serendipitously stumbled upon meditation. And I was exposed to it by a, a rogue religious studies teacher my sophomore year of high school, I went to a Catholic all boys high school. So ironic that in 1993, 94, I was introduced to, you know, Eastern philosophy and meditation at a Catholic all boys high school. Um, but I was instantly, I instantly resonated with the practice of meditation. And at the time was having my first, uh, you know, my initial encounters with acute anxiety and depression. And so I obviously, in relatively short order, began to see the benefits of meditation and what it was doing for me and helping me to not only manage my experience with anxiety and depression, but to get to uh, know myself better, to cultivate a deeper level of self-awareness in general. And so by the age of 16, I developed a two-hour-a-day meditation practice. So I'd go to school I'd come home and play basketball until it was dark outside. And then I'd go and lock myself in my bedroom. And my parents, after a while, were like, what are you doing in there? Are you, are you doing drugs? What's going on in there? The, the lights are off the doors closed. Yeah, the lights are off the doors closed. There's nature music coming from the other side of the door. What's going on in there? And so, you know, I explained it to them. And in their infinite wisdom, even if they didn't completely understand or or necessarily agree with what I was doing, um, more so lack of understanding, they never got in my way and they sort of allowed me to continue down that path. At the same time, around the same time, I was exposed to the works of the Indian philosopher Jiddu Krishnamurti, who um, anyone who's familiar with his work knows that he's a pretty esoteric heavy hitter. So um, obviously, again, back in 1993 and 94 in a small town on the shore in New Jersey, (laughs) Not many 15, 16-year-old boys were reading Eastern philosophical texts and studying meditation. So in so many ways, um, all of the work that I do now almost seems like a surprise to a lot of people in my life, um, not necessarily my parents or people that I've been in romantic relationships with in the past um, or my closest friends, but other people were like, wait, where did all of this come from? So in many ways, everything that I'm yeah. doing and everything that I am today is um, effectively a life come full circle from something that started about 26 years ago. So moving on from high school, I went to university. I started, um, in a pre-med program and then transitioned into finance, uh, after my first semester. Um, I'd always wanted to do something where I could help people. I know that sounds fairly common and almost prosaic, but I, I really wanted to use sort of my talents and, and my blessings 
to to really help the world and help other people. And at that point, medicine seemed like the the easiest line to draw to be able to do that. Um, well, I quickly realized that that it wasn't for me, and I transitioned into finance. Uh, graduated with two degrees in that uh, particular discipline, and then um, immediately went into the world of finance. And ironically, the summer before I started working, I had moments of incredible, incredibly powerful insight that this wasn't what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And yet at the time I just graduated Mm -hmm. school was, you know, coming out with two degrees, a ton of student debt was actually in a very serious relationship, which was on the verge of engagement. And I also had no idea what I would do differently. So I felt like I was on this track going at 100 miles an hour and yet didn't know necessarily how to even slow it down, let alone stop it and reverse course. And so obviously it took me about 16 or 17 years to finally figure out what I was supposed to be doing with my life, which takes us to the point where I began to write my book. So um, for those that obviously don't know me very well. I've always been a writer. I've always been a musician. I started playing guitar and writing poetry around the age of nine or 10. Um, Even for a while when I was working in finance up here in New York City, I'd go spend my days on Wall Street and then I'd go (laughs) play music in clubs in the East Village of New York City at night. So it was sort of like a a Batman dual identity (laughs) sort of scenario. Um, But about three years ago, I hit what you could effectively call an existential crisis. And I'm not using that to be dramatic or anything like that. It it really is what that was. Um, Because I I was sort of left with the awareness that my personal life was completely unfulfilling and my professional life was completely unfulfilling and not for lack of trying either. I've always sort of been a little experimental in life and willing to kind of go in different directions and test things out. And um, it wasn't that I was just sort of allowing inertia to take over and and all of a sudden I just hit this brick wall. Um, So that made it, that compounded the experience all the more because if I hadn't tried anything, well, then I could reflect and say, well, come on, you haven't tried anything. So, you know, that's why you're in this rut. But when you feel that you've sort of exhausted all of your own ideas and maybe some of the wisdom that you've garnered from the people in your life, you really feel stuck and you don't know what to do. So I was sitting on a bench at my favorite coffee shop in New York City. And while all of this was sort of swimming around inside of me, and then I had a moment of clarity um, when I asked myself a question, well, what are you doing right now? Because right now you actually feel peaceful and happy. And I was writing and drinking coffee at my favorite coffee shop and people watching, which in my neighborhood is a very interesting thing to do. Um, And often exciting thing to do. (laughs) And, And it dawned on me that maybe instead of always focusing on outcomes, which is the predominant paradigm in our society that I'll be happy when I have this job, this relationship, this amount of money, this apartment, this everything, Mm -hmm. that if I re-engineer that paradigm to be a focus on aligned behaviors over outcomes, then not only will I be happy and peaceful and loving and fulfilled in the moment, but then all of the things that I would have ever wanted in terms of goals or even sort of external fulfillment will naturally come my way because I'm not fighting against myself and I'm not fighting against life anymore. And I'm not attracting experiences that aren't meant for me or that aren't um, harmonious or that are unhealthy for me. You know, in so many ways, I think that as well as we think we know ourselves, we really don't. And we think that all these experiences that we tend to stress and stress over and struggle for are the the things that are going to be the answers. And in in many ways, um, we don't necessarily realize that those things might not be, not be the answer. So um, I started journaling as a result Mm -hmm. of that moment. And uh, ironically, I tried to write a few books uh, over the course of my life 
starting in my early 20s. And I always sort of fell flat on my face with that. Um, and ironically, I was able to write a book in the moment when I stopped trying to write a book. So how's that for um, Zen Buddhism? Right? That sounds like a cone in itself. And so I started journaling. And after a few months of, of you know, jotting these inspirations that were coming to me on these ratty pieces of paper that were like scattered on my nightstand, I started to read through them and reflect on them. And I noticed that there was a linear train of thought through them, which was really surprising to me because it just seemed so haphazard and random that these things would just come. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I could turn this into a book. And then, so I started the process of doing that. It took me about nine months to compile everything and figure out how I wanted to design it and lay it out. Obviously you've read the book and you have the book and it's a very non-traditional layout. And there are obviously conscious and intentional reasons mm -hmm. for that. And then in uh, November of uh, 2017, I self-published it on Amazon. And I remember the night before it came out. And I said to myself, if this literally impacts just one person's life, if this helps them even just ask the question, not necessarily even give them an answer, but to, add, to make them stop, give them a moment of pause to say, what am I doing? Because obviously what I'm doing isn't, isn't working then this whole process was worth it. And mm -hmm. if anyone out there has attempted to or actually written a book, they know what a Herculean process and journey that can be. But that's literally how I felt in all honesty. I was like, I had no idea what was going to happen. And so now about a little over a year and a half later, just with talking about it on Instagram and no marketing really whatsoever, the book is in 19 different countries around the world on five different continents and has paved the way for me to do all of my like one-on-one -on -one coaching, awesome. my group coaching, public speaking, my daily blog, all of it. So it was like literally the sun mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. started shining into my life. And it was like, good job. You finally figured it out. Did you feel like when you first started that, like, okay, I am going to put this out there like this is a little piece of my heart this is not something that I'm used to doing this is not in my comfort zone did you feel that like that fear come up before no honestly I mean again being a writer in general and I've had some create some of my creative work published before and being a musician and being on stage I've never really been shy um part of my work or some of my roles in finance included, you know, speaking in front of large groups and, and um, architecting, you know, pretty substantial events. So I've never been shy. Okay. In that okay. regard. And obviously, we know, obviously we know each other. So, you know, that I'm not necessarily shy by nature. Um, I tend to be pretty outgoing, but, um, but I, but I could totally see where you're coming from in the sense of you you feel like you're putting something, sacred yeah. out there and you could be a little you could be fraught with a little bit of anxiety like I don't know what's going to happen or how it's going to be received and the only way that I could say this is is sort of the way that I answer the question um that people ask me when are you going to write another book and people were asking me that like two days after I published the book it was like a whole and you didn't even read, you didn't even read this one yet and you have no idea what goes into this the process of writing a book so like just hold, hold it like hold it for a second right and, and the answer was that this, this process, as I feel most of my work is, was such an inspired process that it, it had very little to do with mm. me. I was just the vessel and the conduit for doing this. So I felt absolutely compelled to write this book. That's why I say I, I didn't set out to write a book. The book wrote itself effectively through yeah. me. And I would never want – I never – I wasn't seeking to – assume the identity of an author yeah. and all that. I didn't even look to be doing the work that I'm doing now. Right. It was yeah. that I was called. It was that I was called and compelled to move in this direction. And every day I feel that way, even with the challenges that we, you know, we inevitably face doing this work. I always come back to that inspiration, mm -hmm. that calling, that sense of inner awareness that, you know, this is what you're meant to do and you have to be able to see through the superficial, you know, distractions of fear and anxiety that 
inevitably sort of bubble up from time to time. But again, going back to what I was saying the night before I put the book out, it was that this, this wasn't, this wasn't about me. This was about me communicating a message that I was chosen to communicate to other people. So Mm -hmm. whoever was going to resonate with it was going to resonate with it. And in so many ways, that's why I went the self-publishing route because I want, if it was going to do well, I wanted it to do well on its own merit, that it was a message that needed to be heard and that needed to be received by people's minds and hearts. I mean, initially I thought maybe my mom would buy like 10 copies and then some <laughs> in New Mexico would buy the other one and, like, you know, and that would be the end of it. But then, you know, very quickly after the book came out, there were brands that started reaching out to me, you know, various wellness brands and yoga related brands that stumbled upon. The, I mean, it was really just sort of a mystical experience that um, an intuitive experience that ultimately led me to the realization that this is the direction that I'm supposed to be going in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will you talk about the difference between, you know, for you in the book, and I felt this in my life too, there are certain things that we feel pulled toward, right? Like you said that it was just coming through you and you didn't really know why you didn't see what the outcomes would be. You just felt like you had to do it and you felt like you had to put it out into the world. So, you know, like almost like a calling being pulled, that kind of feeling versus like being in your career before seeing red flags, um, you know, all, all the, the things that came up with that being drained, but feeling that security, but also maybe feeling stuck. Can you talk about the difference between those two paths, those two, uh, actions? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the interesting thing is I, I mean, I guess on a superficial level, you could say that my old life felt very safe, but it also felt very threatening at the same mm-hmm. time, ironically, because I felt so stifled and often so confused and, as you said, drained and just sort of um, unfulfilled and not actualized. I didn't feel that necessarily everything that I had to offer the world was being allowed to manifest and blossom So that made life really, really difficult. And again, as I said, it wasn't for lack of trying. It was that I was, I was always sort of like putting my foot in the, you know, in the water to try different directions and nothing seemed to work out. Right. So, um, you know, if you can imagine for 17 years, knowing that this is not what you're supposed to be doing and yet continuing to try to, you know, moving to different cities and, and everything else, it's just, it's, it was like, it, you know, kind of put you at the edge of your rope. And thankfully, again, I had this backstop of yoga and meditation. So I've been practicing meditation now for 26 years and yoga for about 12. Because I'm not, you know, having a predisposition towards anxiety and depression, I don't know how I would have gotten through it otherwise. Because at a certain point, it's like, do I have to walk through the desert for 17 years? I mean, that sounds like a really long time, you know? And then um, it's funny because now people will ask me, don't you wish you would have written the book or began this work, you know, 20 years ago? And my answer is that, which allows me to embrace everything that I went through during those that 17-year period with so much gratitude is that I wouldn't be able, I wouldn't have been able to write that book and I wouldn't be able to teach the way that I teach now because a big part of my work is making what are effectively or traditionally Eastern principles and teachings and concepts accessible to people that are accustomed to a Western lifestyle, right? Not everybody that I grew up with or that I know, the guys back home, they would laugh at a yoga class or a meditation class. But if they see someone who on a superficial level from a lifestyle perspective that they can relate to doing these things, talking about these things, thinking about these things and reflecting in this way, then it makes it accessible to them too. And I wouldn't be at the point I am now and be able to reach people with, you know, sometimes some, some fairly deep content if I didn't, if I wasn't able to open the door in that way. And it took the 17 years of those experiences 
to be able to to teach from from that perspective and to also be able you know especially in my coaching practices my one-on-one coaching my group coaching i've lived the experience that most of the people i work with are going through i've been in an un, a cr- incredibly unfulfilling soul-sucking career i've been in incredibly toxic relationships right i've lived these things i'm not teaching from a textbook or something that I read about, or this, you know, just sort of from a theoretical place, I'm teaching from my own experiential evidence. Mm -hmm. And so everything that I went through, I look at as a blessing and a gift now because I can leverage it to help other people and ultimately self-actualize my own purpose in life. So how then, what's the flip side of it? How do you, how can you feel around and figure out what what should I be going towards? How do I find that fulfillment? How do I find that place where I feel like I'm living with purpose and I am connecting to people and having joy in those everyday little moments? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest hurdles for people when they start having that experience of doubt in terms of their their life path is that they sit and wait for a sign, this very demonstrative sign from the universe that (laughs) hallelujah, the sky opens up, the path clears and and you see it. Right. And, or they sort of maybe have an overwhelming sense of awareness that this is what it's supposed to be. Right. In some way, life is going to present itself in a very obvious way to you. And that does happen sometimes. I don't want to say that it doesn't happen. But mm-hmm. more often than not, it's more about experimentation, right? Mm-hmm. It's what yep. a lot of people call <laughs> trial and error, but I refer to it as exploration and discovery. Mm-hmm. And people, a lot, you see this a lot of times with people that, um, that remain in unhealthy relationships, they wait until they find someone else to leave the situation that they're in. And yet they continue to waste all of this in, this invaluable time that they'll never get back by clinging to a known, unhealthy, underserving experience rather than releasing from that and devoting time, energy, and, and attention to experimenting with potentially healthy serving and aligned experiences, right? So that's a tough answer. Most people don't want to hear that. They want to know the answer. They want to know exactly what they're going to do. They want to know exactly when it's going to come, who it's going to be, who it's going to be with, you know, the way it's going to take shape. And I find that's sort of the, that's sort of the, um, the unfortunate predominant perspective that we have in our culture. It's everyone wants to know the end of the movie. They don't want to sit there and watch it. They don't want to live their life. They just want to know that it has a happy ending. And yet isn't, isn't the real juice, isn't the real joy in life, the mystery, the uncertainty. So I talk about uncertainty quite a bit in my work in various formats, right? And I tell people, especially people that tend to be in a really stuck in a really tough place, And they talk about their fear of uncertainty and all the anxiety that surrounds that. And I said, well, if uncertainty didn't exist, then the reality of your suffering right now would would be your reality for the rest of your life. If there was no uncertainty, then nothing could change. Everything was predestined. And this course, this inertia that's behind you right now is what's going to ultimately shape the rest of your life. So the very thing that you're terrified of is actually, if you embrace it, from another perspective is the ultimate source of joy in life that anything in this moment is possible. And so when you're actually able to make that internal shift, life becomes completely different. And the hard truth of it all is that the inherent nature of life is on every single moment is uncertain. And that terrifies people obviously because of existential dread, right? Then, you know, our minds are sort of wired to go to the worst case scenario. So if you marry up an uncertain uh, present reality with uh, a bias toward disaster (laughs) and, and overwhelmingly negative thinking or destructive thinking, well, that's a powerful combination to keep people locked in fear and anxiety. But if you can just accept the fact that life is uncertain and then 
twist it to your advantage to acknowledge that anything is possible because of that uncertainty, then everything's different. And another thing that I like to, to, to explain to people is that we often think about these dramatic moves. We allow our lives to ultimately decay to a crisis point where now we feel we have to move because everything's so uncomfortable, so unconscious, so unhealthy that now I've got to make this dramatic shift. I've got to quit my job. I've got to leave my spouse. I've got to move to another country, like all these dramatic changes. And while sometimes those are necessary, I caution against those because what you think in the moment in terms of this grand vision out there somewhere in the future is ultimately going to be the answer. That's something that aligns to the present version of you. And the bigger and further away that that vision is, the, the, the greater the disparity between your present reality and your vision, the more likely that things are going to change in that time as you're moving toward that. And so a lot of times when people set these huge goals and they're, they're so myopic and committed to them, they get halfway along the journey realizing they don't want that anymore, but they feel that they've invested all this time, all this energy in moving in this direction. So they feel, I can't stop now. I've got to keep going. So that's why I advocate, obviously, cultivating a certain level of self-awareness to know that we need to change, but then making more, fine, more of a fine-tuning adjustment. Let's take a step in this direction and see what happens. Right? It's sort of, an, it's sort of a model of awareness, action, and stillness. Right? So awareness to reflect, to think what we should do, definitely having a bias toward action, and then being still to see what happens because life is a dance. Right, we're just because we put a ton of effort into what we do doesn't mean it's necessarily going to manifest. Right, life has to respond to what we do, so we have to reflect on what we want to do and what we think is most aligned for us to do. Do it, and then see what happens, and then survey the new landscape as as life evolves as a result of what we've done, and then continually taking those steps. So it could be one step, two step. Oh, not so sure that this, this doesn't seem like the, the way I want to be going or things don't seem to be aligning the way I had anticipated. So let me sidestep. Let me backtrack. Let me go in this direction. Again, it's looking at life actually as a journey and embracing the mystery that we don't know what the end is, but doing our best to enjoy the process of figuring it out. That's the fun part. Everyone looks at that as the, as the chore, as the thing that they don't want to do. But isn't it exciting to you? If you, if you uh, came across a movie on Netflix that you've seen before versus one that you've never seen before, you'd probably want to watch the one you've never seen before because you know how the other one ends or the same thing with a book that you've already read. And yet when it comes to our lives, we just want to know how it ends. We don't want to live, we actually don't want to live our lives. And that's one of the biggest things that I try to reverse in people is that live this story, embrace this mystery, because this is the gift. I think part of the issue when it comes to that, people having such fear around the whole, the mystery, right? And the the taking maybe the next step, even though you're not sure if it will be the best for you or not, just feeling it out. Is that feeling of not wanting to face the challenges, not wanting to feel any pain, not wanting to have to let go, not wanting to have to become someone different because everyone sees you as a certain person. And that, that can be terrifying. Um, I experienced all of that, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty recently because I've been on this path for not that long. So right. what would you say to someone who's, who's like, but how do I even do that? How do I even t- take that step? If there's so much fear involved and stuckness and right. self-awareness isn't there yet. What, how do you start to cultivate that? Yeah. So it, it's funny. I encounter very similar reactions to a lot of my work from people. And it often comes not necessarily in the exact form that you presented it, but it comes in the form of this. It's, but it's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I always sort of, I always sort of, I always tend to reply with a little bit of compassionate, tough love there. And I say, but what's more difficult? Mm-hmm. 
continuing on this path that you absolutely know is not for you and is forget even being aligned is perhaps eroding your life and your capacity to be happy, peaceful, and loving, or to go through the short-term discomfort of having to experiment with different modes of being, which is what we ultimately have to do anyway. So it's sort of allowing ourselves to initially become comfortable with uncomfortability. Mm -hmm. And then we see the opportunity in uncomfortability. So a lot of times I'm a big fan of giving people homework, whether it's when I'm working with someone one-on-one or as a group, you can ask anyone that I work with. I give out homework constantly because I, (laughs) because I'm, I'm, you know, I think, you know, there's a tendency a lot of times in the, in the personal development and self-help space and even more so in the, in the spiritual space that we talk about concepts, but we don't necessarily understand how to live them in a practical Mm -hmm. sense. So just rewinding a bit to my own experience, you know, being exposed to the teachings of someone like Krishnamurti, which are incredibly intellectual and philosophical. Well, after I read the first book of his that I did freedom from the known, I was so appreciative for the wisdom that I encountered, but I was left hanging. Mm -hmm. I was left with a now what? Okay. Now I've, I've seen through the looking glass. I can't, intellectually, psychologically, or spiritually refute this wisdom, but I have no idea how to live it now. I I wish I had never come upon this because I know the way I'm living is not the way I'm supposed to be living, but I don't know how to live the other way if I don't want to sell everything and move to a mountain in Tibet, if I want to stay in the Western world, which I do. I don't, I, my life doesn't align to asceticism. Obviously I live in New York City. (laughs) (laughs) You can't really be an ascetic and live in New York City. Um, but yeah, so going back to the homework thing, it becomes, uh, you know, it's all about integrating principle and practice. And oftentimes when it comes to helping people get more comfortable with uncomfortability, we take small steps. So mm-hmm. an example would be, I would mm-hmm. advise someone, go out to dinner by yourself, go to a nice restaurant and sit there by yourself. Because what and, and a lot of people are terrified to do that, right, by the way. So it doesn't necessarily even have to be that level of step. But what I try to underscore to people, whatever it is, whatever level of uncomfortability they're willing to, um, to engage with, what I try to teach them is that when we intentionally, when we consciously and intentionally place ourselves in, a, in environments or engage with experiences that we ourselves acknowledge as uncomfortable for us, it becomes much easier for us to consciously and equanimously equanimously respond when experiences or environments pop up that we didn't consciously or intentionally decide to engage with, right? Because inevitably, we're always encountered with certain experiences or environments that are uncomfortable, but we're caught off guard. And we don't know how to handle them. And oftentimes we sort of fall apart because we haven't necessarily cultivated that level of strength within us. But if we consciously and intentionally put ourselves in those environments and engage with those experiences, then we build up a certain level of inner strength that we know that, okay, well, it's uncertain. And not only was I able to handle it and pass with flying colors and not freak out, but... um, but I met some really cool people. And had I not even gone on this little adventure and been by myself, or if I had been with a friend for dinner, then that person probably wouldn't have spoken to me and, and it opened up. So then you start to see the benefit of embracing uncertainty, right? And that's a very crucial first step for people and a very practical way to begin doing that. I just, I love your advice. I really do because it's so... I'm very practical <laughs> and logical as well, you know, like I, I was an engineer right. and all of that. So I'm like, I love, I love how to make things tangible. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what you offer is very, it, it, it makes sense and it makes it, you know, useful for if you have a busy job or if you're like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years in and you're like, okay, right now what? Well, to me, ultimately life lessons aren't valuable if they're not livable, right? Then exactly. it's sort of just like intellectual or spiritual candy. 
right? It makes you feel good for a second because you're like, oh yeah, that sounds good. That sounds right. But if you don't know what to do, um, and, and that's why I also feel that if, if we don't explain how to practically live this way, then it ultimately becomes a point of frustration for people that are pursuing the path with the best of intentions, right? So forget about people that are just sort of casually engaging with work like this, but people that are really committed to doing the work and they're sort of halfway through and they don't know how to, to practically integrate these teachings, it could turn them off completely. Right. And then they just shut it out, go yeah. back to sleep yeah. and, and forget about it, right? Um, and go back to that life of, of a chronic undercurrent of dissatisfaction, which I say that most people live, right? Kind of goes back to that, harkens to that mm-hmm. quote by um, Thoreau, you know, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Um, and, I, and I feel that yeah. that's so incredibly true. Yeah. So I'm changing subjects. Go a for bit. it. I'm really curious with, yes. you live in New York City. And it is, mm-hmm. it is fast there. It is like busy. There's a lot of people and you've been there for Eight a years. while. And this might be kind of a question, but how, how do you find the balance of giving yourself that space and time for practice and for that self-discovery in such a busy and energetic Yeah, I, I mean – when I first came to New York City, I was incredibly overwhelmed. And it's not like I come from a place that's all that far away from here. I used to come to New York City quite often as a kid, as a teenager, even in my early 20s to hang out with friends. So it wasn't just like a shock to the system, you know. Um, but ultimately, you know, again, going back to creating the space for myself, knowing how valuable these wellness practices are these life practices of meditation and yoga and journaling and, and asking yourself these questions and taking time for reflection and seeing how valuable throughout the course of my life they've been and how instrumental they've been to leading me to this incredible point in my life where I am right now. I have a firm commitment to integrating those into my daily life every single day. The first thing I do when I wake up is I meditate. And some days it's two minutes and some days it's two hours. I don't have a very rigid sort of, I don't believe in rigidity um, with a lot of these practices because um, sometimes they tend to become chores that way. And you never want any of these, these experiences to become what you feel is a chore. Um, the, demonstrating the commitment is doing it, not necessarily the duration or the intensity of it. Um, so that's how I'm able to remain consistent. And it's funny you ask that, that, that question in that way too, because it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately too. And I was actually gearing up for somebody to ask me this question at some point. And I kind of look at, and I kind of look at, so I have a little <laughs> bit of prognostication maybe perhaps. Um, but, uh, I look at a place like New York city with all of its, you know, uh, distractions, if you will, as the ultimate proving ground of presence. If you can be present here, you can be Mm. present in any environment. And the city forces you to be present because you have cars coming in this direction, people on bicycles coming in that direction, people looking down at their phones and walking and potentially bumping into you and cracks in the sidewalk and sirens and lights and everything, right? There's everything here to distract you. And in order to, to remain present, you have to be able to experience all of that but also say stay clear in what you're intending to do and so i look at being out and about in the city and just walking the streets as a meditation in and of itself it forces me not to be distracted even though i could be incredibly distracted if i allowed Mm -hmm. myself to be i love that you just brought that up because i'm i'm really in the belief that you know there's there's practice that we do that we intentionally set aside time for, you know, like sitting down to meditate every morning, journaling, um, you know, reading certain books, having specific conversations, going to uh, seminars or workshops, things like that. But then there's also incorporating yeah. mindfulness in, into your day-to-day life. 
Well, that's actually in, in, in so many ways, um, you know, there are a lot of people, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but there are plenty of people out there that I work with or that engage with my work who, for whatever reason, whether it's cultural or religious or um, just sort of personal preference, don't necessarily resonate with what, like sort of the the Eastern window dressing of my philosophy or even with traditional meditative practice. And again, going back to the book, so Mm -hmm. I sort of did this, I guess, in maybe a Trojan horse way. The book is effectively about turning your life into a meditation by assembling it and constructing Mm -hmm. it from all of the behaviors that are naturally resonant with you. Because I define meditation, a meditation to be any practice or behavior that naturally draws you into a state of presence. So for you, I know that's probably dance. Yeah. For, 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 For me, it's definitely playing the guitar and writing. And it could even be walking in the city. I, I find that incredibly meditative for me, as I just said, right? So in many ways, the way that I frame or relate to traditional meditative practice, I equate with going to the gym. You wouldn't go to the gym and do bench presses for 18 hours a day, right? You go and do your sets and then you go out into the world and you bring that strength and that physical well-being into lifting boxes and you know just moving around in the physical dimension of your space. And the same way with traditional meditative practice, that when we cultivate that level of stillness in a traditional way, that it allows us to bring that, that experience of calm, that experience of equanimity back out into the rest of our lives. And in so many ways, I, I see that's one of the issues that, I, that I've had with the way the West has appropriated meditation, because it's almost appropriated in a way that it's medication. And it's wonderful that people are going to meditation classes, but they're they're going off to their stressful lives and their you know their crazy parties and their one night stands and all all the, the just the craziness of their lives lives right. And then they go to meditation class to sort of disconnect from all of that, reconnect with themselves, and become calm. And then they come out, they're right back on their phones and out to to everything else, everything that brought them into that disharmonious and stressed out state to begin with, when what we're actually supposed to be doing, whatever form of meditation you're practicing is once that you've been able to cultivate that experience of stillness within you, you preserve it and you bring it back out into the rest of your life, into a conversation with a friend, into your drive to work, right? Into sitting at your desk and working on a spreadsheet, into going shopping for the afternoon, right? It, it isn't, it isn't medication. It's, it is medication as a byproduct, but it's actually supposed to be something that helps you tap into something that you bring out with you into the world. Yeah. And helps you steer your life too. Absolutely. You know, like make clear choices that are based on what you actually want, not just on the fears well, that are yeah, driving that- you and search that sense of security. Yeah. That's a wonderful that's a wonderful point because I feel like our culture is so obsessed with doing. And I think I put this in a post the other day that I said there's there's nothing to do but be. Right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when all that we do is focused around doing and we don't cultivate and make space for stillness, it breaks down that model that I talked about of awareness, action, and stillness, right? You can't just keep doing, 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 and then not paying attention to what's happening as a result of what you're doing. But you can't pay attention to the result of what's happening from what you're doing if you don't create the space and the stillness to observe that. Right, right, totally. All that, all High fives across All the board. Man. Yeah. This is why we're it's friends. So right? good. It's so good. It's so helpful, you know? So helpful. Yeah. Well, I just I'm so appreciative for you coming on, honestly. I really am. And I think I th- I feel like this is an episode that people are gonna listen to it and they're like, I need to listen to that again. <laughs> and then they're like, maybe just a third time. Like, I wanna listen to it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I just, yeah, 
I love everything you say. It's just so good. So good. Yeah, we, we have, there's so much possibility, right? And, and a lot of this, a lot of my work, especially early on when I was writing the book too, I mean, I worked in an office with good people, with capable people, smart people, nice people. And every single day, I would just see how miserable they were. And it, and it hurt my heart to see that, especially people that I really cared about. Um, you know, every day I'd walk in, and I've always sort of been a fairly positive person. Um, and I'd ask people, like, what's going on? What's new? How are you? You know, just, like, excited about mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And, and they were like, oh, same old, same old. Like, what did you do over the weekend? Oh, not much, yeah. you know. And then they're back at this, this grind that, that, that's literally grinding them into the dust. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, like, it, it, I couldn't help but think there has to be more to this. There has to be a different way of doing this. Because if there's any meaning to life, I don't necessarily know what that is, but it's not this, right? And and I just wanted to make sure that I was leveraging the benefit of my own experiences and insights to make sure that that um, that people ultimately live the lives that they're meant to live mm-hmm. and be truly and sustainably happy, peaceful, and loving. It's totally possible. It is. It is. And there are people out there who will tell you it is. Yeah. Like us, it is. It's totally possible. Yeah. Yep. So for everyone listening, I will have linked down below how you can connect with Steven. He has great Instagram posts. Um, his book on the way is incredible. Um, it's, it's a fun read because you can, you can read straight through or you can kind of like open up and read bits and here and there. Um, so I'll also have that link below how you can find that book. I really suggest checking it out. Um, but yeah, Go go find him and go read his stuff. It's really if you found this really helpful, keep connecting with him. So thank you so much, thank Stephen. You. I really appreciate it so much. No, I really appreciate it. This was so so much fun. I feel like we could do this for like another four hours, right? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. We totally could. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of like flew by, but yeah, totally. Well, So everyone listening in, go find Steven and I hope you all have a great day.